Welcome to the Confab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of the Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. Andrew Ferguson is here to talk about 50 years of Rolling Stone magazine and the role the magazine's founder, Jan Wenner, has had in making the counterculture the new establishment culture. Andy Ferguson, welcome to the Confab. How are you? I'm great. It's always an honor and a privilege to be here. No, no, it's the other way around. Yeah, I guess you're right. (laughs) So now, Rolling Stone, which is singular, not to be confused with Rolling Stone's The Band, but Rolling Stone, the magazine, has been somewhat in the news of late and not just for having to retract scandalous, scurrilous, slanderous articles. That's right. That's right. Um, it's the 50th anniversary of uh, Rolling Stone, which was founded in 1967 by Jan Wenner. And uh, as a result, uh, Jan Wenner has been on TV a lot. There's been a huge biography of him published uh, just a couple months ago. HBO has a four-hour documentary about him, which is probably maybe three and a half hours too long. Um <laughs> But actually, I shouldn't say that. He's a very interesting figure and uh, quite a significant figure in in journalism and music. Now, he he had something of a falling out, I've I've heard, with his official biographer. Yes, he gave um, a a magazine writer named Joe Hagen, quite a good writer, um, he gave Hagen uh, complete access to his files and Uh-oh. yeah, arranged a lot of uh, for a lot of friends to meet with Hagen and uh, so on. Uh, and Hagen got in return a, um, a pledge not to interfere with his writing of the book. So um, Hagen had a free hand and he produced a book that's um, I wouldn't say it was character assassination, but it's it's. It's extremely negative about Wenner on a whole range of counts. Well, before we get to the negative counts, what uh, what made has made Jan Wenner extraordinary? Well, um, the the fact of it is, and the reason why he's worth writing about him, why I wanted to write about him this week, um, is uh, he was a truly great editor. Um, he's often compared to Hugh Hefner, who also founded a very famous magazine in the second part of the 20th century that still survives. Um, but it's a completely unfair comparison to Wenner. Wenner actually produced, well, Hefner produced girly pictures and paid first-rate writers to produce third-rate stuff, like people like John Updike and John Cheever. And, um, well, even even John Updike needed some place to get rid of his you know failed essays. Yes, or, or the por- uh, the porno that he <laughs> that he wrote. But Wenner actually discovered writers, um, catapulted writers, um, published them in their prime, indulged them. You know, it's P.J. O'Rourke, Tom Wolfe, um, Hunter S. Thompson, most famously probably. Wolfe says that he's the greatest editor he'd ever worked with, and Wolfe has had a what a sixty-year career, and that's, and a 60 that's quite year saying something. Career where he was places like Esquire and its prime, in its prime, New York Magazine under Clay Felker. I mean, to 
for Tom Wolf to say you're the best editor you ever worked with is pretty significant. And the way you describe it in your piece with uh, Hunter Thompson, Hunter Thompson was sending in this wild mishmash of stuff, and and Wenner would find a way to sort of organize it and sew it together a little bit, and the seams wouldn't show, and something extraordinary would be the result. Yeah, yeah. The the greatest of Thompson's, well, he has two, two, I think, genuinely great, wonderful books, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail in 1972. And both of them were written on the fly. And usually when Thompson was in some kind of alcoholic state, um, and he would send the his copy over the, a teletype to the editorial offices in San Francisco where Wenner and an assistant would be waiting. And Thompson would produce the stuff in no particular order, but of course it's it's such dazzling prose and it's so funny and so vivid uh, that it's worth publishing anyway. But Wenner actually constructed the pieces that he sent over the wire, as you say, into into the pieces that we know today that are still read and still admired. And it's kind of hard to to think back now how odd it was to have great work like that appearing in a rock and roll pop music. Right. magazine. Right. That had good effects and bad effects. I think it um, uh, it, it raised the um, pomposity quotient in, in uh, popular music and rock music in particular quite a bit because it was kind of now coexisting with this very um, advanced kind of journalism. Uh, and so people felt like, well, rock and roll must actually be more substantial than it really is. So you, you got a lot of big think essays about rock along with your Tom Wolfe or your P.J. O'Rourke or your Hunter S. Thompson. Now, Jan Wenner, though he was a serious editor, um, he was sort of a fanboy as well. You talk about, in your essay, uh, his chasing of Mick Jagger and especially John Lennon. Yeah, the, it was a very significant relationship he had with John Lennon for, for the magazine because Lennon, um, his... Lenin gave him a tremendous amount of access, um, partly because Wenner was one of the few people in the world who had actually published the naked pictures that John and Yoko had taken of themselves. Oh. Uh, there's, yeah, there's a great quote in the piece from George Harrison about describing what the what the picture is. But um, I believe it was something like too flabby. Not, not, the, the word flabby not, figures not flabby, in there body. Um, but anyway, it really helped. Um, uh, Wenner to kind of establish this relationship with John Lennon because then um, they could go to other big pop stars and say, you know, look, John Lennon is in our magazine. He writes for it. He, and then, of course, he did a very famous, very long interview with Wenner in which he just absolutely torched his entire past, including his Beatles relationships. And nothing's better than to have the one of the most famous rock and roll musicians in your rock and roll mu- magazine um, setting the standard that what you're supposed to do is trash everybody in sight. <laughs> right. right. It became kind of a trend, and I think it continues to this day. In its time, the magazine was the counterculture. But as you write in, in your article in the Weekly Standard, the counterculture has become the culture, and nowhere is this more evident than in the pages of Rolling Stone. Yeah, in a, in a sense, Rolling Stone was kind of 
designed by Winter, actually, is kind of a roadmap of how the the counterculture would transform itself into the dominant culture, which, of course, it is now. And I'm speaking of the 60s culture from 50 years ago to the kind of um, cultural um, dominance among, I don't know what you say, moderate liberals, liberals of some kind over all the institutions of American life, from the universities to the foundations to... Um, even most businesses now. And he was able to kind of take the energy of the 60s revolution and refashion it um, partly for his, largely for his own benefits, in which it wasn't so bad to be a capitalist anymore as long as you expressed the proper opinions, you know, if you, as long as you were pro-choice and pro-gay rights and for redistribution of wealth and all that kind of stuff. You could have as much money as you wanted and live and as, as, as elite. Cars as, as you as could sports find a cars and, garage for. Yeah, and houses in, he had two townhouses in Manhattan at one point. He had a couple of houses in um, Long Island. You could, you could really live the life of Riley as long as you just voiced those opinions that you can trace back to 1960s uh, you could, liberalism. You could move your magazine from San Francisco, the spot of the counterculture, to New York City, the place that establishment culture is all about. Yeah, with customized offices overlooking Central Park. I mean, he really did live lived life. And, and um, a lot of what we see today in the, the kind of the style of politics, uh, particularly on the left, is owing to the influence of Rolling Stone and, in turn, of uh, Jan Wenner. Well, in a way, that's all you need to know about the guy, but there are specific uh, unpleasantries that uh, come out in the biography that Jan Wenner wasn't too happy to see in print. Yeah, he's, he's uh, basically, from everything you can put together, uh, objectively speaking, he's basically a creep and uh, treats his employees not very well and uh, is sort of a... Um, sexually omnivorous um, sort Someone of guy. Who in the post-Weinstein age oh, Lord. Is, would be, the, have a little trouble for himself. The stuff that Hagen describes and, and quotes from former employees is like, it's not quite Weinstein level, but it was uh, relentless um, pursuit of the people who worked for him, both men and women. Um, and I think he pursued them successfully in most cases. Um, he also had just this bottomless appetite for drugs, um, and which got him in trouble here and there throughout his 50-year career. But again, I, I, I think the thing worth talk, or the, the, the thing worth reading about and thinking about is um, just what a marvelous contribution he made um, to journalism. And um, Rolling Stone really, it stinks now. It's a, you know, it's not a very good magazine anymore. But at its time, it was it was truly um, an important uh, contribution to American life, in my opinion. And one of the things you point out, a lot of readers of Bonfire of the Vanities may not remember that it was a Dickensian effort at serial novelizing by Tom Wolfe in the pages of Rolling Stone. That's right, and it, and it was Wenner's idea. Um, Wolfe got stuck trying to write a novel, and Wenner said, look, you're a magazine writer, why don't I give you a deadline every two weeks, and you have to write the, write the um, novel in installments. And Wolfe realized that that was the only way he was going to get the book written, and um, sure enough, it turned into one of the great books in the 1980s. He, the same thing happened with the right stuff, which is 
Wolf's great book of the 1970s um, and one of the great pieces of Americana in our literature um, about the astronauts, the Mercury astronauts from the early space program. Wenner saw what he had there. You know, he, he, was, he just had an eye. He saw that Wolf was really on to something and encouraged him and paid him lots of money to develop the material that became this great book, The Right Stuff. Andy Ferguson, senior editor of the Weekly Standard, writing on Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone magazine in this week's edition of the Weekly Standard. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Eric. Always a pleasure. That's it for the Confab this week. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.